Well, good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. It's good to see everyone here. And uh, what is tomorrow? What is tomorrow? It's Labor Day. How many of you know the history of Labor Day? But how many of you are thrilled that tomorrow's Labor Day? So full confession, I had to look up the history of Labor Day. How many of you honestly don't know the history of Labor Day? Raise your hand, just in front of God and everyone in the room. No clue. Well, I will tell you this, President Grover Cleveland just became one of my new heroes because he was the one that instituted Labor Day. And it's fascinating, if you read up on the history of it, though, many people believe that he did it as a political move because there was so much unrest. It was during that huge boom, the industrial age, and there were a lot of riots. There were actually some very serious riots, and there were some marches against different industries, and so many people felt like it was a political move to where he could calm some of that unrest. And the other thing that I learned, that the first workday unrest is recorded from ancient Egypt during the building of the pyramids where all the laborers walked off the construction site and refused to work another day until they got paid. Didn't that factoid just change your life? <laughs> but the idea is it's Labor Day. It's a day where our country, along with dozens and dozens of other countries, kind of take a day to take a break. But what's fascinating is, ours took place during the Industrial Revolution. People who were impoverished were working seven days a week, 12 hours a day. And children as young as five were working in factories in deplorable conditions. Thank God times have changed in much of the world, but in many parts of the world, it is unfortunately and horrifically still the same. But when you think about the idea of the Industrial Revolution, it's when our country transitioned away from being an agricultural economy to where industry began to take over, and that's where people found their jobs. This morning, I'm going to talk about the idea of Labor Day or a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath rest. Now, I am well aware that this is not part of a sermon series. We're actually launching the new sermon series next week or next Sunday. It'll be entitled Change, Change. Following that, there'll be a sermon series entitled Messy Church. So change first, messy church second. But the idea here is, is that Scripture brings to us the idea of a Sabbath rest now, before I kind of jump into this kind of Labor Day Sabbath rest, I want to read for us the uh, uh, scripture found in Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 27. But before I go there, I want to ask you a question. How many of you believe that the Ten Commandments are important, if not worth living by? Raise your hand. 
Actually, more of you believe that than knew what Labor Day was or the history of it. What I'm going to do is we're going to take a look, as we always do, we're going to take a look at the life of Jesus, and then we're going to look at the Ten Commandments. And our reading, again, is taken from Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 27, and we just finished up a lengthy summer sermon series on the Gospel of Mark entitled, Faith for the Real World. So I want to begin our reading. It's rather brief. It's an episode from the life of Jesus, Mark chapter 2, and in this episode we discover that the Pharisees, who are a religious leadership sect within Judaism, who've been around for a couple hundred years up at this point, are coming against Jesus. They've been observing him and watching him very specifically on the Sabbath. We'll get to the reason why in a moment. Needless to say, here's our text. Reading, it says this, verse 23, Mark 2. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples walked along. They began to pick some heads of grain. By the way, I grew up on a farm in Wisconsin. We did this countless times, where you would walk through a wheat field. All of our fields, most of them were covered with a winter cover crop called winter wheat. It would come up. We would harvest that and then plow that under and plant something else. It was sort of the first crop of the year. And I can remember walking through the field countless times, stripping a head of wheat, rubbing it in your hands, blowing off the chaff, and throwing it in your mouth. It was the best example of farm-to-table eating ever. (laughs) Reading on. So they're walking through and they're picking these heads of grain. They're doing that. Verse 24, and the Pharisees said to him, look, why are they, meaning his disciples, doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? I guess they were not into eating organic cereal. And he answered, Jesus answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now what in the world is happening here? What's going on? Well, we need to begin with a little bit of kind of getting out of the way the comment that Jesus makes about King David. You see, there was a point in time before David was king, he'd already been anointed as king by the prophet. King Saul was still the king. Here David is, he's kind of the king in waiting. Saul had really messed up his relationship with God, and because of that, God said to Saul, I'm going to tear the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of Israel, away from you, and David was anointed as king, so he's waiting. There comes a point at which he's hungry, and he literally goes in, and not only does he eat grain, but he eats it in the temple, which was reserved only for the priests. And you see, King David was the hero of all the Pharisees. They loved him. And Jesus says, well, hey, what about King David? What you have to understand, though, is that when Jesus says that, 
He is comparing himself to David. He's announcing there's a new king here as well. It's very important to catch that. As we look at the idea of what's happening, though, we kind of need a little bit of an Older Testament backdrop. And we find that in the Ten Commandments. Those ten things that God gave to Israel. Now, as we're getting ready, and I'm not going to have them on the screen, I'm just going to quickly read them. When we begin to think about the Ten Commandments, the question often is why? Why did God bring them? Well, it's actually simple. Israel has been enslaved to Egypt for 430 years. They have worked seven days a week, a minimum of 12 hours a day. They've been slaves. And as God is getting ready to deliver them, and as you know, he delivers them through Moses, not Charlton Heston, but he delivers them through Moses, and they are free. But what God knows is this. They have no clue how to operate as a people. They have not been a nation. They haven't even been a culture. They've been crushed for 430 years by the Egyptian empire. And this group of slaves, although they know the God of Israel, they're going to need help. And so God gives them these 10 commandments. Now granted, by the end of the newer te Older Testament, those 10 commandments have grown to 613 laws. But these are the core 10. And what God is doing and what God is saying to Israel is, listen, I'm going to set you free, and if you live by these 10, you will remain free. But if you don't, you will end up in bondage even if you're politically still free. And so here are the 10. I want you to think and kind of process to see if you know them. Exodus 20 brings us the 10 commandments and God, whenever he introduces the 10, always introduces himself this way. I am the God that sets you free. I'm the God that sets you free from slavery, whatever that might be. And so in Exodus 20, verse 2, God announces to the children of Israel, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and in order to stay free, here are 10 laws. Number one, have no other gods before me. During the sermon series on Messy Church, we're going to look at how that could apply to our own lives today. Next law, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. Next law. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses it. In other words, don't use the name of the Lord in vain. The next law is this one. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. It is the one law with a promise. Next, you shall not murder how many at the very least, even if you're not a spiritual person, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, but you're sitting here and you're kind of looking over the wall at faith, how many of us honestly believe that you shall not murder is a good thing? Would you say that? Yep. How about the next one? You shall not commit adultery. Is that a good thing? A little quieter. 
The next one is, you shall not steal. How many of you think that's a good thing? Yes. The next one is, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. In other words, don't do it in court, but don't do it anywhere. Don't lie about people. Don't bring them down to build yourself up. And then the last of the laws is this one. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. How many of you have ever struggled with that once? Confession time. Now, if you're counting, you know I skipped one. Does anyone know what it is? It's the Sabbath. It's the fourth one. The Sabbath has become the least applicable law to our spiritual lives. The other nine, we kind of get. And almost all of us, when we're sitting here, especially as people of faith, when we talk about the Ten Commandments, are they applicable for today? Hands go up and people say, absolutely. Even in Jesus, the Ten Commandments are still real. And yet the Sabbath is something we almost know nothing about. Yet it's the fourth commandment. And here's what it is. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or your daughter nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. Doesn't it sound like that was written by a lawyer? <laughs> you ever notice that? Like if you ever go into the bathroom on an airplane, it does not say just don't break the, the smoke alarm, right? What does it say? Don't touch, don't tamper, don't... There's a whole legalese thing on all of those so people won't go in the bathroom and smoke. Why? We always try to look for the end around. I didn't break the smoke alarm, I tampered with it. Big difference, right? Well, it's kind of like that. Because God knows that we have this tendency that there's this day that we're supposed to set aside for the Lord, and what we'll do is, we will do that, but we're going to make our kids work. How many parents do you think that's actually a brilliant idea? <laughs> They'd be working one day of the week instead of, anyway. But you look at it and God goes through it and says, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your slaves, nor animals. No work. Stop. And when we look at this one, can you imagine being the people of God exiting slavery where you have worked seven days a week? You've been enslaved. And one of the ten says, take a day off. Can you imagine how much God loved them to say, take a day off? That must have been music to their ears that there's this God that doesn't work you to the bone seven days a week, but in says, take a break. What's amazing is by the time of Jesus, of all the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath is the most important. That may shock us. But if you were to look in the Newer Testament, you would discover that whenever Jesus has a conflict or controversy, it's almost always about the Sabbath. So the Sabbath at this point in time had become a huge deal. Why? 
because it can be publicly monitored. By the time of Jesus, there was a whole volume, a whole body of literature outside of the one commandment, the fourth one, that said, take the day and keep it holy. And this huge body of of literature was called the tradition of the elders. And they had decided what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. And they got pretty strict, and there were 39 forbidden tasks. One of them was reaping or harvesting, and most Bible scholars believe that is why the Pharisees, who are monitoring everyone's activity on the Sabbath, said to Jesus, why are your disciples working? Why are they breaking the law? You know, they also had a law that said you could only walk so far on the Sabbath, it was a quarter mile. Some of you are going, I haven't walked a quarter mile in forever. But it's known as a Sabbath walk. And at times in the Newer Testament, that's utilized to show you how far Jesus was from a certain place. It's a quarter mile. If you ever go to Israel or to Jerusalem, I've been there several times, you will notice that in the neighborhoods, there's certain colored tape hanging on the power lines, and that tells people from the different Jewish sections of town how far they have walked, because they never want to walk further than a Sabbath walk. The other thing I noticed in Israel was that if you get on an elevator, you need to check which one you get on. Because on Saturday, the Sabbath, there are Sabbath elevators and everyone else's. And when you get on the Sabbath elevator, it stops at every floor, every last one. It goes, doors open, you stop, you sit there. Next floor, next floor, next floor, all the way to the top. You want to know why? Because their Sabbath laws teach you can't push any buttons, run anything electric. And so because of that, what we need to understand is by the time of Jesus, although they don't have electricity, they have a lot of other things, and the elders have brought in these laws that govern how you operate Sabbath. Again, it's called the teaching of the elders or the traditions of men. And they stop Jesus and say, how dare your disciples break the Sabbath law? What you need to know is that law was not written by God. All God said was, work six days, you take one day, and you rest. All of their laws, though, had been heaped on top of this day, and Jesus' disciples were breaking their laws. Not God's, but theirs. Now, most of us by now are sitting there thinking, Pete, you've got to be kidding me. You're actually going to say that we need to be a group of people that seriously consider taking a Sabbath day. Wasn't that fulfilled in Jesus? The answer is no. Yes, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, but he never says, don't do Sabbath. He just says, do it the right way. Why? It's one of the Ten Commandments. Now, here's what we know. The Sabbath rest comes from the creation story in Genesis. 
where God creates for six days. And when he's done creating, what does he do? He rests. And even in the giving of the Ten Commandments, it tells us clearly that the reason why humankind takes one day to rest is because God did. But the question becomes, if you're a thinking person, one of our pastoral team while we were sitting around discussing this passage this past week, Darcy, who's one of the people that serves on our lead team, she said to me in the midst of our staff discussion on Sabbath rest, here's what she said. But Pete, here's the problem with this. Yes, she's type A. The problem is, is the Bible says God completed his task. And then he rested. (laughs) Well, I asked her a question. What do you think God did on the eighth day? And she said, oh. You see, God rested, but he wasn't tired. God doesn't get tired. And yet it says he rested. And that we are too. We are supposed to take a day where we focus on him and we rest. But here's what I know. I already know what's going through people's minds, I'm well aware. Because we live in Charlottesville, Virginia. I don't want to get hyper-spiritual here, but the Bible speaks of powers over cities. Spiritual entities over cities that drive people. Our city is no different. Because we live in a city that forces us or tries to force us to do certain things. Things like this. To be an athlete. Ever notice that? And if you aren't an athlete, you very well better love sports. You better love them. Like truly love them. Like Tony Bennett is the fourth person in the Trinity kind of love. (laughs) And if you don't really love UVA sports, you still have to hate Duke. It's just how it goes. The spirit in the, it just drives us to do this. In line with that, did you notice that Alabama beat Duke in football yesterday 42 to 3? And this morning, I looked up the score because one of my best friends is a Crimson Tide fan. And when I asked Siri, what was the score of the Alabama football game, here's what Siri told me, that the Crimson Tide pounded Duke. (laughs) So I called her back again, said, Siri, what was the score of the Alabama game against Duke yesterday? And she said, this time, Alabama crushed Duke. (laughs) I called her again. And she went back to pounded. But look, here's what we know. It's very important to catch this. That Alabama is the crimson tide. Crimson tide made me think of Jesus' blood. And Duke are the blue devils. So (laughs) Jesus' blood washed away the devil again. But you see, we live in a town where athletics are huge. And if you're like my son, Peter, 
who doesn't like sports other than squash and could care less about sports at any level, you can quickly feel like you're on the outside. Not only this, we live in a town that education is the most important thing. And it's not just that you get a college degree, it's where you get it that matters. We live in a town that perpetuates the American dream that everyone's shooting for. And I can't tell you how many times, countless times, I've met business people around our community who made their money somewhere else, and they would readily admit that they made their money somewhere else, but their ultimate dream was to live in Charlottesville because it's such an amazing place to live. And I agree. I totally agree. But you see, the problem with the spirit of Charlottesville is that if you say, I'm going to take a Sabbath rest, people around you are going to think you're crazy. As a matter of fact, some of us are sitting here and you think, you've got to be kidding me. Does God really mean a 24-hour period that I set aside? And you'll say to me, but Pete, I'm in high school. Got to get into the right college. And the college students would say to me, but I'm in college, and I need to get med school, grad school, whatever it is. And then there's other people sitting here, I'm done with the college stuff, Pete, but man, I'm newly married, and we're getting into this rhythm where we're learning about relationship physically and emotionally and spiritually. You honestly say we ought to take a Sabbath, and then the next couple would say, but we're a young couple with a child. Have you ever tried to take a break when you have a child? I've had three of them. Then others would say, well, they're middle school kids now, or they're high school kids. My kids are high school. Now my kids are in college, and I can't afford. And some would say, but then grandkids come, and then you're dead. (laughs) You see, the idea with Sabbath is, It's a good idea for every phase of life. In fact, I really want to challenge college students. You see, the reason why the Sabbath was so important in Jewish culture, it was visible. And so there's this group of people, and their name is Israel, and they're living categorically different than every nation around them. Those nations are working seven days a week, but on this day, the Jews rest. It made them fundamentally different than any other culture. And they do it because of Genesis 2.31, God did. And he commands his followers to do the same. Now what's amazing is, Jesus honored the Sabbath, but he did it properly. Oftentimes, we'll read in all of the Gospels where it will say, and as usual, on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue to worship. He walked through the Sabbath. The reason why I said that is because some of you are sitting here going, yeah, well, at City Church, we ask everyone to serve. And so I'm going to become so spiritual that I don't need to serve at City Church because it is my day of rest. Just so you know, 
Jesus went to synagogue on Sabbath. That meant people were serving so other people could worship. Aha, I got ahead of some of you for once. Now, what is Sabbath? What is it? The root word for Sabbath taken from Genesis 2 is this. Cease. Stop. What you've been doing for six days, you cease that. You stop. And you take a day where you rest, you rejuvenate, and you focus on God. And here's what I can tell you, is that if you don't do this somehow, some way, and even if you're not a follower of Jesus and the Bible means nothing to you, just please take this, God created humankind and he knows what's best. And some of us live with roaring anxiety and absolutely no margin because we never rest. God says there is a day where you rest. And if you don't, you will rest, but it's called getting sick. You see, in verse 27 of Mark chapter 2, Jesus comes to us. And he says the following to the Pharisees. Here's what he says. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You see, that was their problem. The problem was the second part of that sentence where he says that the Sabbath was made for man, not, and here was their problem, man for the Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath had become a way to abuse people and dominate people and fill their heads with rules and regulation and fear because Sabbath is everywhere among the Jewish people. It's everywhere. But you see, that's not our problem. Our problem is the first part of that phrase where Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man. He's referencing the creation story of Genesis 2. Please remember, Jesus never said, no Sabbath. He just said, do it right. So how do we put feet to our faith with this? What does this look like? Well, know this, that in the creation story, God blesses three things. He blesses the animal kingdom when he made it, He blessed humankind when he made people. And then he blessed one other thing. It's day seven. It's the Sabbath. God blessed that. God blessed the animal kingdom. He blessed humankind. And he also said, there's this certain day, and I will bless that day. So if you are like I am, and I want God's blessing in my life, I think we need to reconsider as a church family, what does Sabbath mean? If God blessed it, and he commands it, it must be as important as do not murder and do not steal. Here's what I have found as I have practiced Sabbath. Here's what I've found. If you do it like I do it, you might actually have to stop and deal with yourself. Because part of Sabbath is no Twitter account, no checking Facebook, in other words, breaking the addictions of your life and setting those things aside, getting away from the screen and sitting before God. 
We have to deal with ourselves. Here's the other thing that I've noticed is that when I've moved towards Sabbath, the enemy of my soul has shown up. He's accused me. Or maybe it's my flesh. One or the other doesn't really matter. They both pull me away from God. And when you sit there, you begin to think, I'm wasting my time. I'm doing nothing. God would say, you're ceasing. You're living differently one day. And when you sit there, there'll be a voice that will say, if you keep doing this, you will never become CEO. You will never get into the right grad school. You will never get into the right college. You can hear pressure maybe from a spouse or parents or your workaholism or the culture we live in or the spirit of Charlottesville is going to show up and say, don't do this. But here's what I've found. When I have practiced Sabbath, I have exited it oddly refreshed, oddly strengthened, oddly in a new place, because I truly have put God first. I've put Him first. Now, it's one day. What happens on that day? Well, What we know from the scriptures and from the Jewish people that do this, you worship. What else do you do on that day? Well, you cease. You stop doing what you've been doing for six weeks. You you refocus, and you're going to love this. You feast. You feast on the Sabbath. You feast. You eat your favorite foods. Sometimes you hang out with your favorite people. But at the center of this day is time alone with God, an extended time. Maybe you do it like Jesus, because notice what he's doing on the Sabbath. He's walking through the grain fields with his disciples, and he's picking some grain. They are, at least. And they're eating. They're hanging out. They're walking with Jesus. They're doing it just by themselves. What I've learned about Sabbath and learned from other people who've done it much longer than I have. Some talk about turning off all electronics and then lighting a candle. There's Bible reading and singing. There's walking. There's physical rest. There's taking a nap. There's time with family and friends. There's thankfulness. But more important than anything else, there's time spent one-on-one with you and God. I want to challenge you. Sabbath rest. It's one of the Ten Commandments. And people will often say, please give me a recipe. It's not how it works. All God says is, cease doing what you've been doing for six days and set aside a day for Him. It might look totally different for you than it would me. But I can tell you what makes that day a Sabbath is that God is at the center. What I've been doing for six days, I cease doing, and I focus on Him.